0: This is The One Thing Podcast, where we teach you the surprisingly simple truth behind extraordinary results. My name's Jeff Woods. I'm the vice president here at The One Thing Team. I remember early on in my time with Gary Keller and Jay Papasan, hearing Gary talk about what it takes to truly build an empire. It requires that you succeed through others, which by definition means you have to show up as a leader in order to succeed through others. When you go down this rabbit hole, you realize a lot of us will tell ourselves a story that we are showing up as a leader. And in reality, we are not. We are not. In those situations when something goes wrong and you feel yourself wanting to blame that person on your team, when something is going wrong and you're saying, no, they knew that that's what they should be doing, and you hear my language, they, 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 not recognizing that um, standards without consequences are merely suggestions. Do you even know what your standards are? Are you hyper clear on the vital things that you will draw a line in the sand? These are the things that you must live. Otherwise, you do not earn the right to be in business with me. Do your people know that? Could they recite it back to you? Do they understand what happens when that line is crossed? There are so many ways that we can top grade our performance as a leader, as an empire builder. This has been a topic of conversation with my coach, where I've been looking at what is it going to take for us to scale our company to the next level and realizing that you know what, I have not been doing a great enough job as a leader. I haven't taken enough ownership over the situation. And he recommended a book to me. Called Extreme Ownership. I read the book and it blew my mind, not just because of how applicable everything was, but it was from the viewpoint of what it looks like to demonstrate extreme ownership from the perspective of not just a Navy SEAL, but the commander of an entire team. If you're familiar with the movie American Sniper, uh, this individual was on the man's team that you are going to meet today. He was the commander of the American Sniper. The stories he has to share that you are about to hear will truly change your mindset about what it means to demonstrate extreme ownership, what it means to be a disciplined individual, and how if you are able to make these shifts, it will completely transform how you show up as a leader and your ability to deliver extraordinary results. This was an added bonus that we gave to the people who are in our Living Your One Thing community. We invited them all in and they had the ability to ask this man questions and interact with him. If you would be interested in learning more about Living Your One Thing, go to theonething.com slash membership. And folks, (laughs) take notes on this one. This is one of those ones, whether if you're driving, go ahead and keep listening. This is one of those ones that you are gonna want to listen to again and again. Because if you dare to take action based on the guidance that's about to be given to you, (laughs) it just may change everything for you. With that, let's get into this conversation with New York Times bestselling author of Extreme Ownership, former Navy SEAL, Jocko Willink. All right, everyone, welcome to our conversation today. I've been looking forward to this one. Uh, My coach and I were having a conversation, and it had to do with where I was not happy with the results that were showing up in my career and in my life. And he was basically holding up a, a mirror and suggesting to me that I needed to start demonstrating extreme ownership over the situation, that the problem was me, it was no one else. And then he recommended a book to me called Extreme Ownership which I listened to, and uh, I took very detailed notes for listening to something on Audible. So uh, I was so moved by the book that I reached out to Jocko Willink, who is one of the authors. Uh, Jocko was a commander in the Navy SEALs. If you have seen the movie American Sniper, um, that man was in your unit, correct? That is correct. And uh, ultimately, we're talking to a lot of business owners. We're talking to a lot of leaders. And there is an incredible, I've found, lack of accountability today because people just haven't been taught it. And your message was so direct and rang so true for me that I thought one of the highest ways we can serve people this month is to expose them to you. So thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. So why don't we go back? What inspired you to write Extreme Ownership?
2: Well, when I was approaching my 20-year mark and getting ready to retire from the SEAL teams, I actually had a friend who worked at a, was the CEO of a, of a company. And he asked me to come and talk to his executives about combat leadership. And Mm -hmm. so I did. And when I got done talking to his executive leadership, he came up to me quickly and said, I need you to do this for every division at my company. (laughs) And I said, well, I'm actually retiring. So no. And then he said, well, I'll pay you. And I said, well, okay. (laughs) And at one of those divisional meetings, the, the CEO of the parent company was there. And he said to me, hey, immediately afterwards, he came up and said, I, I want you to come and talk to all the CEOs of all the companies that I have. Mm. And so I went and did that. And when I did that, all of a sudden, all, a bunch of those CEOs wanted me to come and talk to their companies. And around this time, uh, the, the person that wrote the book with me, Lake Babin, he was getting out of the Navy as well. He was, he was a guy that, that worked for me in, in, in the SEAL teams. And a very good friend of mine who, who served with me in the Battle of Ramadi. And, you know, we talked and I said, I could use some help over here. And so he had, he had actually talked to another company doing something similar. So we joined forces. And as we started working with more and more companies, the companies would come to us. And after we'd get done talking to them, they'd come up and say, oh, do you have this written down anywhere? Do you, we've got folks that couldn't come to the meeting today. Do you have some handouts for them? and we didn't. And eventually we said, well, let, let's go ahead and write some of this stuff down. We wrote it down. And eventually that went into the hands of a uh, friend of a friend, literary agent who read it and said, you know, I I think this should get published. And we kind of looked at each other and said, OK, whatever. And sure enough, it got bought up and got published and it ended up doing pretty well. So, yeah, that's kind of the story of how we ended up writing the book.
0: A lot of the people that we've talked to will tell themselves this story that they don't have results because of the market, their customers, their boss, whatever it may be, um, who's on their team. And I remember you in the book sharing that there are no bad teams. There are only bad leaders. Can you share the example of the Bud's boat story and and really what it means to demonstrate extreme ownership?
2: Well, In the book, uh, Leif was actually an instructor at the uh, basic SEAL training. And part of that basic SEAL training is something called Hell Week. And during Hell Week, you stay awake for about five days and you do a bunch of hard physical evolutions during that time period. And the attrition rate in all of SEAL training and in the basic SEAL training is about 80%. And a large percentage of those come during this block called Hell Week. And during Hell Week you're broken up into what's called boat crews and there's seven or eight people in each boat crew and you are literally assigned a boat to carry around, carry on your head when you're on the land, get in the boat when you're in the ocean, you row the boat and you work together as a team in these boat crews. And the boat crews actually do a bunch of weird obstacles and running and paddling. And every time you do one of these events or evolutions with your boats you're actually racing all the other boat crews and the boat crew that wins gets to kind of rest until the last boat crew comes in and there can be anywhere between you know four or five maybe even 10 or 12 boat crews well in this particular case the uh, boat crew number two was winning all the races and so they were getting some rest and getting to wait for the other boats to finish and boat crew number six was was falling apart and they were losing, not just losing every race, but they were losing every race by a dramatic margin. And, and things start to get even worse because when you lose a race, you get punished. You don't just not get rest. You actually get punished. You have to do some extra exercises. You have to carry the boat further. They make you pay for not winning and they make you pay for losing. And so as this continued to go on, boat crew six is actually getting worse and worse. And boat crew two is getting better and better. Eventually, one of the instructors that was with Leif said, "Hey, why don't we try something? Why don't we just try switching the two boat crew leaders from boat crew number two, who's winning, to boat crew number six, who's losing, and take the losing boat crew leader and put him in the in the winning boat crew, and well, let's see what happens." And he didn't really know what happened. Leif was kind of suspect. I, I don't know, but we'll give it a try. It's an interesting experiment, if nothing else. So they bring in the, the two boat crew leaders and they tell them what's going to happen. And of course, the boat crew two leader who'd been winning was. A little bit, you know, not, not angry, but he said, no, that's that's not, not that that's a bummer because now I'm going to go with this boat crew that's been losing. And of course, the boat crew six leader who had been who had been losing and now kind of, you know, said, great, triumphant. I'm finally getting a good boat crew and, and I won't be cursed with this boat crew that I got stuck with. Now I'll be with a good boat crew. And so they switched. And then they give them the assignment for the next race that they're going to do, carry the boat over the berm and down the beach and paddle it out and flip it over and paddle it back in and run back down here. They give them all the instructions. And then the instructors say, all right, ready, set, go. And all the boat crews take off and they start doing their thing. And time goes by, you know, half an hour, 45 minutes. And and all of a sudden you see the boat crews coming in for the finish line of the race. And lo and behold, who is in first place? coming um towards the finish line it's boat crew six who had lost all the other races and now they're winning and the point is they only changed one person in that boat crew. they only put in a new leader and that new leader made all the difference now that boat crew that had been losing is now winning and they and they won that race and they continued to win many other races and actually their biggest competition was actually boat crew two even though boat crew two had the former bad leader, there was enough momentum and the guys inside the boat crew understood well enough what their attitude had to be and how they had to work together that they continued to win. Even though they didn't have a good leader, they, they stepped up their own leadership and started moving forward and continue to do well. So from that, this is a, we say no bad teams, only bad leaders, but, It's been said many times throughout the history of the military. I think Napoleon said, no bad regiments, only bad colonels. I think David Hackworth said, no bad units, only bad officers. It's the same idea. It's been said many times before, but it can be kind of hard on people because when you are losing or your team is losing, the the, the gentlest thing on your ego is to blame someone else. Blame the market, like you said. Blame the team. And not take any blame for yourself. The easiest thing to do is say, hey, it's not my fault. It's my team's fault. And the reality is, that's not the reality. The reality is, if the team is losing and you're in charge of the team, it's your
0: fault. I heard a quote from somebody in our world named Gene Rivers. He said, standards without consequences are merely suggestions. this was something I did a lot of uh, meditating on because I was asking the question, where in my world am I thinking I'm communicating a standard, but really, there's no consequence. I'm not showing up fully as a leader. I'm making suggestions, and no wonder i'm I'm getting this. I'm getting what I'm tolerating, and I'm tolerating mediocrity. What does it look like to enforce standards in a business setting?
2: Well, this is a very similar statement to to one that's in the book. You know, we say it's not what you preach, it's what you tolerate. And it's it's exactly what you said. If you allow people to be five minutes late for a meeting. Guess what? They're going to be five minutes late for a meeting. If you allow people to show up unprepared for a meeting, guess what? They're going to show up unprepared for a meeting. And and that's what whatever standards you put into place. You might say all day long, or you might send everyone an email, hey, everyone needs to show up for the meetings on time. But if then you allow people to be late for the meeting, the, the words that you speak and the emails that you send, they don't really have any power because you've actually not enforced what you put out, and you've tolerated substandard performance. And when you tolerate substandard performance,
0: that's what you're going to get. Yeah. And, and this is for you who's either with, with us live or for those of you who are listening to this later. First and foremost, are you even clear on what your standards are? Are you clear on the things that you're going to draw a line in the sand and say, you do not violate these things? These are the standard. And are you showing up in the world bringing consequences to them when they're not met? Whether that's in your professional career, whether that's in your relationships. In any area this was a huge eye-opener for me and you know something i try to work on i'm staring at my assistant right now um i got a long way to go but it, it that was very moving for me can you share the story about when you had to demonstrate extreme ownership jocko with the blue on blue situation
2: we had been in iraq for a relatively short period of time on my second deployment we were in the city of ramadi which at the time was the absolute epicenter of the insurgency And we had planned a fairly complex operations, not just with SEALs, but with U.S. Army soldiers and Iraqi soldiers that we were, friendly Iraqi soldiers that we were working alongside. And we were to go out and clear a relatively big section of the city of Ramadi. So that's going house to house, uh, street to street, and going through every building and looking for insurgents and looking for weapons. And on top of that, We were going to have small elements of SEALs, army soldiers and Iraqi soldiers set up security on the perimeter of the area that was being cleared in order to watch for insurgents approaching and also to make sure that IEDs weren't put in the road to blow up any vehicles that that may have to be brought down some of these roads in case there was a gunfight or a casualty evacuation that needed to take place. And it was. Like I said, a complex operation in a very bad part of Ramadi and my put my sniper elements out into the city and they were supposed to be in positions by two or three o'clock in the morning. There was a, a series of events that unfolded with their the vehicles that they were supposed to be riding out to get in position and they had problems and hit IEDs and there were delays and the guys didn't get in the position they were supposed to be in for an extended period of time. And then on top of that, the Iraqi soldiers who were supposed to be doing the bulk of the actual clearance of, this, of the houses, and they had army soldiers with them. We had some SEALs with them, but it was supposed to be primarily Iraqi soldiers. And there's a bunch of reasons for that. Number one is that when they go knock on the door of an Iraqi's house, they can speak the language and they can talk to them and they can assess much quicker than we can, whether it's just a normal family or whether they're from a foreign country and maybe they're foreign fighters and you know possible insurgents and The Iraqi soldiers could discern that infinitely quicker than we could. So they would take the lead on some of these clearances. And and that was the case in this particular clearance. And when this all unfolded, it was at a time of day when the sun wasn't really up yet. But it, it was still dark outside. But you could start to see the twilight. You could start to see the beginning of the sun. So our night vision, all of a sudden, you're not sure if you should wear your night vision or not. It's just that part of the day. And there was a lot of confusion. And basically, as soon as we entered into the city and and the clearance team started clearing, there was a lot of enemy gunfire started to happen We senior people when the junior people are saying, hey, this is my fault and this is what I'm going to do to fix it. And at some point during this, during the beginning of the operation, there was this rogue element of Iraqi soldiers that we, we to this day, we don't know where they got this direction from. But they decided at some point or were told at some point to go up and set their own perimeter security around the area that was being cleared. And this meant that they that they took initiative of their own and moved to a position on the battlefield where they weren't supposed to be. And as Murphy's law would have it, they happened to decide to go and set up their security perimeter position in the exact building where I had a sniper team located. So in a series of just horrible and tragic events, one of the Iraqi soldiers entered the compound. One of the people, one of the friendly uh, people, one of the SEALs inside this building's compound saw a soldier, saw a person with an AK-47 sneaking into their building, knew there wasn't supposed to be any friendly forces in the area, checked to make sure that he had all of his Iraqi soldiers with him and, and then determined that this must be an enemy insurgent engaged and shot that, that individual. Well, that individual turned out to be one of these rogue friendly Iraqi soldiers. Once this happened, the Iraqi soldiers that were outside the compound began to engage that compound heavily. They actually called for a what's called a quick reaction force, which, which was American soldiers that came in with Humvees and began to engage the building that my guys were in with heavy machine guns, actually wounding one of my guys. At this point, my guys called for the heavy quick reaction force, which is now tanks instead of Humvees. The tanks then entered. And when the tanks drove past me, I went with my uh, unit I was with, the command and control unit, and followed the tanks down. And once we got on scene, as soon as I got out of my vehicle, I looked around and, and I sensed that there was something wrong. And asked one of the Marines who had arrived on station what was happening. He he pointed to a building and said, "There's insurgents in those build, in that building right there. They shot one of our guys. They wounded a couple more." And I, I just I just had a a gut instinct feeling that there was something wrong. I walked over to that building. I kicked in the door, and as soon as I kicked in the door where these suspected insurgents were, I saw one of my guys and realized at that point that this whole thing had been friendly forces against friendly forces, absolutely the worst possible scenario that can unfold in a military situation. And, you know, we continued the operation. We got that under control. We executed several more clearances that day, came back, and when I came back finally to base, opened up my My laptop computer, which I know it may sound funny for people that don't know too much about the military, but I opened up my laptop computer once I got back to our base and I read my emails like everyone reads emails. And the first email that I opened up was from my immediate boss. And it said, shut down all operations. You're not doing anything else. Prepare for a debrief to me and the investigating officer of what happened, what went wrong and whose fault it was. So, I read that message, of course, and began preparing a debrief and I pulled out maps and put little arrows and where everyone moved and who went where and what mistakes were made, and who didn't report their position correctly, and what unit should have controlled the other units, and who let people move out of their sectors and as I'm going through this, you now I know that my boss is basically looking for someone to fire because. This is a this is the most tragic and severe type of uh, incident you can have is a is a fratricide, a, a friendly killing of friendly. And as I'm going through the list of who I'm trying to figure out who to blame as well, and as I'm going through this list of all these mistakes that were made, I, I, I couldn't feel comfortable with anyone. I didn't feel comfortable pointing the finger at any person, even though there were some pretty significant mistakes that were made. And it wasn't until I was about ten minutes from walking into this room to debrief the investigating officer, my commanding officer and the command master chief that I, I got struck by a bolt of lightning and it became very clear to me who was to blame in this situation. And I walked into that room and my, both my SEAL platoons, my entire SEAL task unit was sitting in the room along with the commanding officer and the, and the command master chief and the investigating officer. And I, and I went around the room and I said, whose fault was this? And of course, one of my guys raised his hand and said, hey, I engaged that that person that I thought was an insurgent. I didn't do a good job of positively identifying my target. And that's what kicked this whole thing off. And this is my fault. And I said, no, it wasn't your fault. Then another guy raised his hand and said, you know, I was on the radio and I should have reported our position faster than so everyone knew where we were. And I didn't do it quick enough. So this is my fault. And I said, no, it wasn't your fault. And then another guy said, you know, I let those Iraqis get ahead of us and get out of control. And. I was supposed to be in control of them. So they wouldn't have left their sector. This wouldn't have happened. So this is my fault. And I said, no, this isn't your fault either. And then I pointed around the room and I said, it wasn't your fault, your fault or anyone else's fault. There's only one person to blame in this situation. And that person is me. I'm the commander. I'm the senior guy on the battlefield. And I'm responsible for everything that happens out there. Not only is this my fault and this my mistake, but These are the things that we are going to do. These are the standard operating procedures we are going to put into place to ensure that this never happens again. And that's what we did. And of course that's taking ownership and it's taking responsibility. Obviously when things go right, everyone wants to take responsibility, but when things go wrong is when you actually need to take responsibility and and you should take responsibility. And You know, my my viewpoint from my commanding officer, I I actually increased my trust from him. He actually increased me. He actually trusted me more after this operation because he knew that I wasn't going to pass the buck to anyone else. And I was going to take responsibility and ownership of everything that happened. And that was going to happen. And I think that gives a lot of reassurance to senior people when the junior people are saying, hey, this is
1: my fault and this is what I'm going to do to fix it.
0: For every single person who's listening to this, whether here live or later, where in your life are you passing the buck? When in reality, you could look in the mirror and identify where's your DNA in this, because you can't control everybody else. You can control yourself. That shifted a lot for me, Jocko. Thank you for sharing that. I think one of the biggest challenges that we have is is communication. And I hear a lot of people talk about when they struggle with their teams as a leader, people not doing what they think they should be doing, uh, and they they start to point that finger. You have a different view on communication, that um, it's not how you think you've communicated. If your people don't understand, it's your fault. When you look at the SEALs that have been under your leadership, how do you teach that level of effective communication?
2: Well, the the first way you do it is by opening up your communication with your team. And what that means is that you constantly check with them and make sure that they understand what you're saying. And if you give a brief to your team, when you get done with a brief, you just don't say, okay, Billy, do you understand the brief? Because 90% of the time, they're just going to nod their head and say, yes, I understand because I don't want to look stupid. So instead of saying, Billy, do you understand the brief? You say, Billy, if I get shot as we start this operation, And you end up in charge, explain to me how the operation is going to go. and You actually make them brief you on what the what the operation plan is going to be. And that's how you know if they understood it or not. And of course, you have to speak and communicate in a simple, clear, concise manner. And and I always get this with with leaders who find that their people aren't doing what it is they want them to do and they want to get mad at their people. And I'll go and interview the, the folks on the front line. They, they don't even understand what it is the leader wants them to do. And I can promise you, if you if your people don't understand what it is you want them to do because you haven't delivered it in a simple, clear, concise manner, there's no way, regardless of how much they may want to be to, to carry out what your directives are, they're not going to be able to do it because they don't understand it. So the first person you look at when your people aren't doing what you want them to do is yourself. And make sure you're communicating in a simple, clear, concise manner that everyone can understand.
0: Mm-hmm. One of the things we, we teach a lot with people who are trying to live the one thing is this idea that you have two buckets, you have your most important work and everything else. And how do you identify what your priorities are and act in order of priority? This is really hard for people. Yet I'm listening to your stories in the book in situations that I can't even imagine with incredible amounts of pressure, lives are on the line and you have to bring priority into that. What does that look like?
2: Well, in, in our book, Extreme Ownership that we wrote there's a chapter called Prioritize and Execute. And and that is actually one of the fundamental laws of combat that I wrote down when I was teaching combat leadership to the young seals that were getting ready to deploy to Iraq and Afghanistan. I wrote down four fundamental laws of combat leadership and Prioritize and Execute is number 3. And the reason I wrote that down is because I would see all the time while I was putting guys through training that when they got hit with multiple problems at the same time, they would try and solve all the problems at once. And when you take your resources, not just your physical resources of people that you have, but you take your own mental resources and you try and solve multiple different problems at the same time, not only do you not have enough people to do that, but you don't have the cognitive capacity to handle that kind of thing. And so you'd see guys trying to handle all these problems at the same time and they end up not being able to solve any of them. So I'd pull them aside and I'd say, hey, listen, you need to prioritize next week. You need to look to see what the biggest problem you have is and focus your efforts on that problem. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean you need to take all 40 of your people and put all 40 of your people on that problem. But you may need to take 18 of them. You may need to take 22 of them. Then you got some some, maybe some people can move on to the next problem. But you need to focus your efforts on the biggest priority. And when you do that, You'll get that problem solved faster, and then you can move on to some some problems that are having a little bit less impact on you.
0: It sounds so simple, yet when we look at people moving throughout their work life, they still end up multitasking. They're doing this one thing, they hear their email ding, their phone rings, somebody walks in, and before you know it, they're completely distracted. Yet, I hear this story about when you guys were on the roof and that man fell through. Take us to that moment. and What were all the elements that were going on around for people to truly understand that you don't earn the right to shift your focus until that number one problem, that number one priority is accomplished?
2: Well, the the classic example is if you've got a guy that's wounded and you're in a firefight and you've got your forces split up so you don't know where everyone is, that's kind of the classic example. The thing is, oftentimes people will focus on the wounded guy because the wounded guy is your friend, the wounded guy, you're emotional, you want to help them, you're a human being, you have a connection with them, and they're screaming, by the way, they're screaming at the top of their lungs. And so you really want to go help that person. And so you make that your number one priority. And what you forget about the fact that as soon as you walk over to help that person that's been shot, well, now you're getting shot too, because you haven't done anything to eliminate the people that are actually shooting at you. So you forget that the biggest priority is the one that's going to kill you. And that's the people that are shooting at you. And that's a classic example. So when you when you focus on the most emotional problem, which is what happens a lot in business as well, you get the you get the client that's screaming the loudest, you get the um, customer that's making the most noise, even though that customer might be, you know, a customer that's not even actually going to make a purchase. They're just talking the most, they're just screaming the loudest. Meanwhile, you've got a big client that you've had a long relationship with that truly is providing to your bottom line, and you're ignoring that client because you got someone that's yelling. So what you need to do is get away from those emotions. You need to, to detach. You need to detach from the chaos and detach from the mayhem and detach from the emotions and take a step back and, and then look around and do a real assessment of what the real priority is and then prioritize and execute,
0: move forward. I know a lot of the people who are on this live right now are currently in a position where they're hitting up against their ceiling of achievement. And I've heard Gary Keller say this, that whenever you're hitting up against the ceiling of achievement, you're missing a person, either in the form of a mentor or a coach or in the form of leverage. When we start talking about leveraging things out to other people, there's this inherent I can't trust them to do it as well as I can do it. In the teams that you have run, you don't have that as an option. You have to run decentralized command. What does that look like?
2: Well, you said it, and that's one of the biggest problems with people that try and and initiate or try and engage with decentralized command. Decentralized command is really simple. It means everybody leads. That's what it means. It means everybody leads, and that's what you want. When you're a team leader, you want everybody to lead. If people weren't going to take ownership of their part of the mission and go out and do it themselves, if you had the capability to be able to do that by yourself, well, then you'd be doing it yourself. If that's where if you want to stay at that top ceiling that you've hit and you're comfortable with that and you don't want to make any further progress and you you can you've got your you've got your hands filled with everything you can juggle at one time and you don't want to hand off any of those balls to anybody else well then that's where you're going to sit but the minute you realize you know what if i'm going to do more i need to hand off some of this juggling to someone else and that means there's a couple reasons why people have a hard time with that number 1 is like you said they they don't trust someone else to do it well how do you gain trust you you teach people you you mentor people You talk people through things. You hold their hand a few times so that they get used to it. So they see the process. You tell them what the parameters are. Hey, if you get in this situation, come and talk to me. That means you need to bring me back and I'll come down there and give you a hand. So you got to build that trust with your team so that you do know that they're going to execute stuff in the right way. The other reason that people have a hard time with decentralized command is because their ego doesn't want to give up the power. Their ego wants to control everything. And that is also very, very problematic. And it's great to be in control, but if you're controlling your own progress and you're restricting your own progress by, by implementing so much control around your world, you're not gonna get anywhere. And, and as you said, on the battlefield, you absolutely you do not you, you do not have the, the capability of doing that. A person one person can't control 20, 30, 40 people on the battlefield. You cannot do it. So you have to trust your subordinate leadership to step up lead. They have to know what the mission is. They have to understand what the parameters are. They have to know what end state they're moving towards. They have to know and understand all those things very well. But once they do, you got to let
0: them go. Yeah. Well, and this is where, um, when I listen to Gary talk about what it takes to build an empire, all the people that you that report directly to you have to have the capacity to replace you one day. And I know so many people here who start hiring their first assistant or bringing on leverage and they're filling that for that exact role, not asking the question, do they have the capacity to step up and lead should the opportunity present itself? It's a hard, it's a harder person to look for, but it's also required. I mean, Jocko, when you guys are going through the SEALs and you're, you're going through all the candidates and, and narrowing them down. Is there anybody who does not have a leadership profile that ends up making it?
2: Well, you definitely want to have people that are below you in the chain of command that are able to step up and take your place. As a matter of fact, my goal as a leader was always to make the people that were below me in the chain of command, not just ready to take my job, but ready to take my job and do a better job of it. And and that's exactly what you want. And I'll tell you, the minute that you get your people below you able to really do your job for you, let them start doing it. And that way, instead of you looking down and in at your own team, you can start looking up and you can start looking out. You can start looking forward, which means you're going to make real progress in the world, as opposed to just looking down at your team and staying trapped in the little world that you're in. So I'm always looking for leaders. And in the SEAL teams, we definitely want our, we want the people that come in to be leaders. And if they're not leaders, then they're going to get, they're going to get, um, topped out pretty pretty quickly in, in where they end up in the organization.
0: Yeah. This is where I want to take the conversation toward how do we now start to actually live this? I know you just came out with uh, discipline equals freedom field manual, where you really break down your system for how you operate throughout the day. Um, we really believe that people don't decide their futures. They decide their habits and their habits decide their futures. When you look at all of the habits that you've acquired in your lifetime, what's the one that's given you the greatest benefit? I hate to
2: tell you this, and people don't want to hear this, but I would say waking up early. Uh, No one wants to wake up early, or a lot of people don't want to wake up early, but I think waking up early is the the thing where I'm able to get a lot of work done. I've always been able to get a lot of work done, always been able to get an edge on the day always been able to be more prepared when I go on the battlefield and whether that battlefield is the business world or whether that battlefield is, is a city in Iraq, the more prepared you are, the better you're going to do. And sometimes being ahead of the, ahead of the enemy, again, whether that enemy is a competitor, whether that enemy is a client, the more, the, the more ahead you can get of them and the more prepared you can be, the better you, the better off you're going to do. And when you get the habit of getting up early you know, for me, it's getting up early, getting some kind of physical workout done that kind of prepares you for the rest of the day, gets you in the right mindset. And I think when you do that, it strengthens your discipline in every category across the board throughout your day. So hate to say it, everyone, but getting up early has been a big benefit to me.
0: And by the way, folks, for who are here live, um, now's the time to start submitting your questions for Jocko so that we can make sure this is a customized experience for you as well. Jocko, you talk about getting up early. What What is early for you?
2: I get up at 4.30. So I get up at 4.30 every day and sometimes a little earlier, but usually
0: not much later. There you go. There you go. What do you say to the people who are the chronic snooze button pushers?
2: Well, the snooze button shouldn't say snooze on it. It should say, to kill your dreams, press this button, because that's basically what you're doing. (laughs) instead of pressing the snooze button, just go ahead and shoot your dreams in the head because that's what you're doing. So don't hit the snooze button. Get up, get out of bed, and make it happen. And people ask me all the time, how do you get up so early? I tell them I do this. I set my alarm clock, and when it goes off, I get up and get out of bed. That's what you do.
0: (laughs) The surprisingly simple truth behind Extraordinary Results, people. (laughs) Why do you say it kills your dreams? Well, because, like I said, you've got some things
2: that you need to do every day, right? You've got your work, you've got to do your time with your family. You've got some administrative things you need to do, and you, you, your day is packed filled with things that you need to do. And and the first things that get squeezed out of that day of the daily process of your life are the things that actually are long term, that are long term vision that you have. Those are the first things that you squeeze out because they're they're way in the future. So you're not, they, they can get pushed back really easily. And so when you start sleeping in and, and that's the thing that gets bumped off the plate, the things that get bumped off the plate are the things that are really going to mean the most to you in the long run. So get up early and get on it.
1: Brandon Hall asked, what
0: mindset practices do you utilize that help you take ownership of your day and control your emotions and outlook?
2: So for me, I think the biggest thing that that I do is end up staying fairly detached from my emotions throughout the day. And, and and to the point where sometimes I'm having a conversation with someone and I'm actually, I feel like I'm watching myself have the conversation because especially if I start feel like there's an emotion thing here or there's an ego thing getting involved, I'll take a step back, not physically, but mentally. I'll take a step back and say, oh, you know why you're getting frustrated with this guy? Because he's not listening or because your ego is getting in the way and you, you don't feel like you should have to listen to him, but you do have to listen to him. Mm. And it's the same thing with, you know, you start getting frustrated, take a step back. What are you getting frustrated about? Is it something real? Is it something important? If it's something real and it's important, well then how can you step back and take a, take a shot at it and, and actually fi- figure out a way to solve the problem as opposed to just sitting there and getting angry about it. And I think that comes through being able to detach from your emotions, take a step back, and really observe things from a from a higher altitude that allow you to see the bigger picture.
0: Yeah, I love that. And I know in the in the book you shared that ego clouds and disrupts everything. My question is, so many people who take on leadership roles, the business owners, we have egos. How do we start to check it?
2: Well, I, I always have to clarify I don't think that egos are a bad thing. In mm-hmm. fact, Egos are, are are drive. A lot of people, including myself, they, they make you want to win. They make you want to be successful. They make you want to do better. And if you didn't have an ego, well, you'd be sitting on the couch, you know, covered in Dorito dust, watching another thing on Netflix, another nine series episode of something on Netflix, and you wouldn't be moving forward. Your ego doesn't allow that. And that's good. The problem comes when you start letting your ego get out of control. That's that's when you have to watch out. When, when someone offers you something that would be beneficial, but you don't want to take their advice because you feel like you're better than them, so you won't take it. That's your ego getting in the way. Or maybe there's a position you could take at the company, but you're going to have to work for someone that you don't think is a good person, or you think that you're better than them, or you think you know more than them. So you say, no, I'm not going to work for that person. Well, what benefit is that? Go do the job. Do a good job and put your ego aside. The other thing that happens with the ego is we stop. If we think we do everything right, we don't, we don't change. We don't evolve. We don't get any better. So you, you can't look at yourself and say, Oh, I'm perfect. Look at me. I'm great. I'm doing great. No. What can you do better? Don't believe your ego. Let it be there. Let it drive you. That's fine. But don't let it make you rest because you think you've, you've done everything that you can do to be as good as you can.
0: You haven't. Mm, Put that ego in chat. I love it. And folks, keep the questions coming. We really want to customize this to you. Ralph asked, what could be a consequence? Take the situation where some of your people are showing up late for a meeting. How would you advise that they start to bring consequences into a situation where it's not like military, where like you do this, and if you don't do it, it's direct violation, big consequences? Well, that's another thing. You
2: got to remember the military is... Even though people think it's different, you're still dealing with human beings in the military. And mm-hmm. if you become a draconian leader in the military and you punish people for being five minutes late to a meeting, no one's going to want to work for you. And although they'll, they'll be there begrudgingly, they're not going to do their best. And if people aren't doing their best to accomplish the mission, it's not going to go well. So uh, I'm not saying that you have to keep these standards in place where you're, uh, like I said, a draconian leader. But, hey, maybe it starts off as a fun thing. Hey, anyone that's late for the meeting, guess what you gotta do? If you if you're late for the meeting, you've got to bring coffee, you gotta bring, you know, tea, you gotta bring some snacks, wh- whatever the case may be. you owe that for the next meeting. And we make it into something fun and we have fun with it. Or maybe if you're if you're late for the meeting, you've got to put on the dunce cap and sit in the, the head of the table. And you're the one that's got, you know, we gotta pick your picture up. We we have some fun with this, right? We don't have to be we don't have to be this this brutal regime leader. You can have fun with stuff. And and that being said. At a certain point, if you've got an individual that's continually late, well, you might have to escalate that a little bit and say, hey, you know, you know, uh, Bill, you've been late two times in a row now. Do you you realize that when you're not at the meeting, we're waiting for you and that's everyone's time is being wasted? you realize that we got to be on time here? And and, and hopefully the guy says, Bill says, oh, yeah, great. Got it. Hey, sorry. You know, and, and they solve the problem. But maybe it gets worse. Maybe he's late again or again. And and now maybe you do. say, say, Bill, if you're late again, I'm going to have to write you up. Like, like we can't have you late. You realize this is serious. And you continue to escalate that until you've written them up. And, and possibly you have to give them some kind of uh, actual disciplinary action, whether that's, you know, docking their pay, depending on what kind of business that you're in, cutting their commission on something, uh, not giving them some leads that you might have given them otherwise, or whatever the case may be. Maybe in an extreme case, you're letting the guy go or you're giving them written counseling. You know, there's, there's, but, but you have to make sure that you set the clear expectations. And again, you're not trying to be draconian. You want to form relationships with the people that work for you and, and you want to have good relationships. And if every time someone steps out of line, you slap them in the head and punish them, well, then they're not going to want to work for you. And they're looking for another job. So don't be like that. Have some fun, form some relationships, but they do have to realize that there, there can be consequences and there will be consequences. If they, if they push beyond a certain acceptable point.
0: What I'm hearing you say is it all starts with simply acknowledging the action. Whether you're having fun with it or not, it's having the conversation and letting them know that you notice.
2: Yeah, you know, and a lot of a lot of people in, in multiple different levels, people don't like to have hard conversations. So instead of saying something, hey, Bill, you were late. Instead of saying that, they don't say anything. Well, then Bill thinks it's okay. You know, it's not what you preach, it's what you tolerate, so now it's okay. So now he's not five minutes late, now he's 10 minutes late. And by the way, now Steve sees it's okay to be late too. So he's going to finish dropping his kids off at school before he comes in. And now you got two or three people being late. Now you got four people being late. And now, with the, 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 the conversation, the hard conversation, which was like a level two hard conversation at the beginning, well, after a while it escalates. And if you hadn't said anything, now you're looking at like a level eight or nine or 10 hard conversation because the conversation is, hey, if you're late one more time, I'm going to dock your pay or I'm going to let you go or I'm not going to give you the new position that you wanted to. You're having a really hard conversation with them because you want to have the easier hard conversation up front. And it's the same thing with clients. You know, If you've got a client that you've dropped the ball with, you don't wait to tell them and hope that the problem goes away. The problem's not going to go away. It's going to get worse. And the longer that you don't tell them, the worse it sounds when you finally do tell them. So be upfront with people, tackle the problems early and have the hard conversations as quickly as you can.
0: I love it, love it. Uh, Renee asked, were you always a disciplined person from a young age or is this discipline something you acquired or learned at a certain point in your life?
2: The more I saw the results of disciplined behavior, the more disciplined I got. So the more I saw that my performance would increase by the more discipline I had, the more discipline I continued to have. The more I saw my own individual freedoms increase by the increased discipline that I had, the more discipline I continued to put into my life. And so I'd say it escalated over time. I wouldn't say I was ever a horribly undisciplined person, but I definitely didn't grow up any more or less disciplined than the average kid.
0: Yeah. Martina asked, how do you handle fear? Have you ever been panicked? And if so, how do you handle it in that situation?
2: The thing with the fear is there's a couple different kinds of fear. There's fear of things you can't control and fear of things that you can control. The fear of things that you can't control, well, you do your best to mitigate those. You do your best to, to prepare for those situations to occur. You do your best to inoculate yourself to that. So if you're afraid of heights, you start doing things that expose you to heights until you get more and more comfortable with it. and And then eventually you get to a point where you've done all the the preparation that you can do, you've mitigated the risk, to the best of your ability. And once you've done that and there's nothing else you can do, well, you can't worry about it anymore. And you just have to either step across that threshold or stop thinking about it because the more you think about this thing that you can't control, the more time you're wasting on doing something about the things that you can control. So the things that you can control, the things that you're afraid of, do your best to, to face them head on. Um, again, gradually inoculate yourself to them and the 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 kid's book that I wrote called Way to Warrior Kid, uh, the kid in the book can't swim. And he's getting made fun of and he wants to learn how to swim, but he's scared of the water. And his uncle comes to help him, who was in the SEAL teams. His uncle was in the SEAL teams. And he says, "Okay, you don't know how to swim. Here's what we're going to do. He starts off by just taking him down to the river and they go for a wade. They they wade around in the river. And then they come back a few days later and they, they go a little deeper. And then they come back a few days later and they go a little bit deeper. But now he dunks his head in the river. And then they go back a couple days later. Now he dunks his head in the river multiple times and holds his breath and keeps his head down there for a while. And then they come back a couple days later and and his uncle says, okay, now you're just going to go step a little bit over your head and then come back. And, And they continue to inoculate him and, and expose him to what he's afraid of until eventually, you know, he knows how to swim. And then eventually he jumps off the bridge in the, in the end of the book, which was one of his goals. So you inoculate yourself and make yourself comfortable. I mean, if you're uncomfortable talking to people, Go up and talk to people. If you're uncomfortable making calls, then have your have your, you know, other other people that you work with, your companions, have them force you to make phone calls and do phone calls with them. Practice mm-hmm. practice them being the biggest jerk clients that you could ever imagine. Have them <laughs> practice that. Say, be a jerk to me. Treat me horribly. Tell me no. Reject me. So you get used to how to handle it. You get used to what to say. You get used to overcoming their objections. And that's that's how you become that's how you overcome fear brush up against it. But the last little piece, you have to go, you have to step, you you have to make the step. So you prepare as much as you can and then you step and go. I
0: love it, I love it. Uh, Stephanie asked a great question. What critical thinking questions can we ask ourselves as leaders to make sure we're leading an accountable team?
2: I'm always looking at myself and saying, okay, what can I do better? And one of the best ways to look at what you can do better as a team is you as the leader, if you're the leader of a team, step away step away, give them the task, give them the mission and step away and let them let them work and let them see how they do. And when they come to you and say, well, we don't know what to do. Well, that could either be an indication that you've you've give you've spoon fed them everything. And so they don't they haven't figured anything out for their own. And, and now you're going to have to continue to spoon feed them. If you put them out in the wild, they're going to die. So that indicates to you, you need to stop spoon feeding them and start stop being the easy button which is every time they come to you with a problem, you just instantly solve the problem because you know more than that. So when I want to find out how my team is doing, I step away from the team. I let the team, I, I delegate someone as the new leader for these period of days, and I'm going to watch and see how they do. And that's going to identify some weaknesses of my own and some weaknesses in my team.
0: <laughs> What's the biggest mistake somebody makes when they, they read Extreme Ownership, they get inspired, they start taking action and they miss something. What's that What's that one thing that you just see people missing over and over again?
2: Well, one thing I see with extreme ownership is people read the book and they say, man, this is a great book. If only my team would take extreme ownership or if only my boss would take extreme <laughs> ownership. <or laughs> only yeah, my yeah. clients would take extreme ownership. And then that right there is the opposite of extreme ownership. The person that you need to take extreme ownership is you. And, and if you want to spread extreme ownership, that's how you do it in, in your organization. You don't tell your team, "Hey, you got to take ownership of this." You start taking ownership, and if your team is gonna is not going to take ownership of something, take it, take it, and run it, and then they'll look at you and say, "Wait a second, why why is my boss doing my job for me?" Wait, that doesn't make sense. Hey, boss, let me have that back. Let me do that. That 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 should be me running that. Let me have that, and and that's that's what will happen both up and down the chain of command. So if you want to implement extreme ownership in your world, start taking ownership yourself. The other part of that is kind of similar to what I just said, but if you've got members of your team that you think are not taking ownership, well, give them some ownership. Don't say, hey, you've got to take ownership of this, but this is my mission and it's my responsibility and it's my plan. No, let them come up with a plan. Let them have responsibility. Let them come up with a way they're going to execute this mission so that they actually do own the plan. And they do own the mission because it's theirs. So if you want to get people to take ownership, it's, it's it's a dichotomy here. And again, that's one of the chapters in the book is the dichotomy of leadership is it's a dichotomy because in order to, to get people to take ownership, number one, you have to take ownership. And number two, you have to give them ownership and you have to do that simultaneously. So yeah. again, if the bill, if I tell bill, Hey Bill, I want you to, I want you to execute this target here. And here's the people I want you to take. And here's the vehicles I want you to use. And here's the route I want you to use. And here's the the methodology I want you to use to enter the building and I give him the entire plan. That's not Bill's plan. And even though I'm telling him to take ownership of it, I'm giving him the whole plan. So I'm the one that actually owns it. So when he goes out in the field, he doesn't feel like it's his plan. It feels like it's my plan because it is. So when he goes out in the field and he says they hit some kind of an obstacle or something happens that they weren't expecting. And he goes up, see, Jocko's plan wasn't any good. Go back to base. We failed the mission, but it wasn't my plan. So not really my fault. Well, instead of me saying, hey, hey, Bill, here's the mission and here's how everything I want you to do. I say, hey, Bill, here's the mission. Come up with a plan and tell me how you want to do. It. And now Bill comes up with the route. He comes up with what people can take. And he comes up with what vehicles he's going to use. And he figures out the methodology he wants to use for the target. It's now it's really his plan. And so when he goes in the field and he hits some kind of an obstacle, he still wants to overcome that obstacle and he'll go over it or around it or through it in order to accomplish the mission because it's his plan and he has true ownership of it. So now if something goes wrong, that doesn't mean you get to point the finger at Bill and say, yep, it was Bill's plan. That's not my fault. Even though I'm in charge, it was Bill's plan. No. Now you need to take ownership and say, hey, I didn't review the plan well enough. I didn't do a good job enough coordinating the plan. I didn't do a good enough job preparing the team for the execution. So in order for people to take ownership, you have to ride that dichotomy between giving ownership and taking ownership yourself. Yeah,
0: that just highlighted for me some areas where I'm not doing a good job. So sorry, looking at my assistant. You talked about having people above the chain. I know what it's like to work for somebody, um, not in my current situation, but in the past where um, I felt like I was being stifled you would suggest that you still have ownership in that situation. How do you take extreme ownership when you do report to somebody and especially if you're not agreeing with the direction?
2: If I feel like I'm being stifled, like let's say I'm working for a micromanager that's really giving me minute direction and everything, I am actually going to give them more information than they could have ever thought they needed. I'm going to give them <laughs> such detail that in a matter of weeks they're going to say, "Hey, look, Jocko, just just stay out of my office. I don't need to know everything that you're doing. Just go out there and make it happen like you're doing." So I'm going to give them the impression that I'm I'm even more micromanaging than they are, and that's the way I'm going to move forward. It's just, and and if it, and if the opposite is true, if I'm not getting direction from my boss and he's not really giving me the kind of guidance that I need then you know what? I'm going to make the guidance up. And I'm, I'm not going to make it up and step on their toes, but I'm going to go to the boss and say, hey, boss, been listening to what's going on. I'm, I'm figuring that this is what you want me to do. And I just want to hear make sure I wrote it out for you to make sure that you agree with what, where I'm going and make sure I'm on the, the right page. So I'm not stepping on my boss's toes in either one of those cases. I'm actually just trying to do a really good job. And and like you said, move forward, control what I can and take advantage of the situation. I love People always complain, oh, my boss doesn't take ownership. I say, you know what? When my boss didn't take ownership things, of things, I was ecstatic. Because if my boss wasn't going to take ownership of something, guess what? I was. Oh, you don't want to give the brief? I'll give the brief. You don't want to make up the plan? I'll make up the plan. You don't want to make this thing happen? I'll make it happen. It's no problem. If your boss isn't doing what, what if your boss is not stepping up and leading, that's fine. Step up and lead yourself.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So folks, uh, hopefully you have been inspired. I would encourage everybody to pick up a copy of Extreme Ownership. If you're an Audible listener, go to audible.com slash one thing. If you are not currently an Audible customer, you'll get a free trial and a free credit. You can make this your one. Um, if you're a hard copy fan like myself, November 17th, my birthday, the revised, or is it's the re-release of it. Is that correct? It's the re-release.
2: There's also a new forward in it. And there's the Q&A section that we pulled from my podcast. On my podcast, Jocko Podcast, we talk a lot about leadership. And so we pulled some of the critical leadership questions from the podcast and kind of crafted them a little bit and and made them into a nice Q&A section to get some of the common common, uh, questions
0: answered about leadership. Yep. I love that. So you've got extreme ownership. You've got discipline equals freedom field manual. And if you're interested in his kid's book, the way of the warrior kid Jocko, but before we conclude, we believe consuming content's great. We honor everybody for, for listening to this and investing their time. We want you to take action. What's the one thing they can do such that by doing it, everything else will be easier or unnecessary when it comes to them taking extreme ownership.
2: Okay. Before you go to bed, Write down the critical things you need to do tomorrow. Wake up early in the morning, exercise, and then attack that list and get those things done. Imagine where you'd be in three months if you did that every day. You'll be in a whole different world. So get on it.
0: So you're saying get clear on what your priorities are and act in order of priority? Prioritize and execute. Hmm. Yeah. Jocko, thank you for your time, sir. Thanks for having me on. Well, there you have it, my conversation with Jocko Willink. Let's recap some of the big rocks. First, there are no bad units. There are only bad officers. There's no bad teams. There's only bad leaders. This is essential for your mindset to build a high-performance winning team that will produce extraordinary results. Where in your world are you telling yourself the story that you got a bad team when really you should be looking in the mirror and realizing it's you? How can you show up differently? Are people clear about your standards? Are you communicating effectively? I love how Jocko says, as a leader, it doesn't matter how well you think you've communicated. If your people do not understand, you have failed. When you communicate to the people in your world, do you just look for them to nod their heads at you and you're telling yourself the story that they got it? Or are you asking them to repeat it back to you? Are you putting them in situations where, like Jocko said, hey, if I get taken out and you have to step up and lead, walk me through the plan to truly test for the depth of their understanding. No one succeeds alone, folks. To achieve extraordinary results in your life, to build an empire, it requires that you succeed through others, which means you are not there like a puppeteer just pulling strings and people are moving around. It means you cast the vision, you communicate it, and you let them run and you let them lead. The idea of decentralized command. I know so many of us have a hard time letting go and delegating. We just don't think they can do it as well as us. As long as you tell yourself that story, you are imposing a false ceiling on your achievement. Why would you do that to yourself? What's the one thing you are not doing that if you started doing immediately would allow you to develop the habit and the vital skill of succeeding through others? What would that be? Would you dare to go on a 66-day challenge to making that activity a habit. If you'd like, you can get a copy of your 66-day challenge calendar at theonething.com. Go to the free stuff page. You can download it there and you can start tracking your progress. Finally, Jocko talks about the importance of discipline. He wrote an entire field manual on it, the Discipline Equals Freedom Field Manual. We believe... Discipline alone is not enough. And you heard Jocko talk about this because we started talking about the word habits. Can you get clear on that one thing that you're not doing yet? Can you apply your discipline, your willpower to doing that activity? For on average 66 days until the point where boom, it becomes a habit. It then no longer requires your discipline. It no longer requires your willpower. It is locked in. Maybe for you, it's pushing that kill your dreams button. (laughs) That was so funny. I loved it. And in fact, this morning when my alarm went off, I was like, don't kill your dreams, Jeff, get out of bed. Oh, but it's so cozy. I just want a spoon. No, get out of bed. I got out of bed. Thanks, Chaco. Lots of value in here, folks. I'd really encourage that you time block time to listen to this one again. And if you're like me and you listen at an accelerated speed, slow it down. Take notes, build a plan, prioritize, and execute. If you're the type of person where the idea where Jocko calls prioritizing and executing, we call it thinking and acting in order of priority. If you struggle with that, truly having clarity on these are the handful of things that matter and this is the one thing that matters most and having the discipline and ultimately the habit of acting in order of priority, meaning you do nothing until you earn the right to by mastering number one, you need to join living your one thing. That is the purpose of this community and that is what people learn to do within the first 30 days. Go to theonething.com slash membership and you can learn more folks thank you for your time thank you for your attention you just invested an hour of your most valuable resource our question for you is will you guarantee yourself a return on investment by taking action we hope so if you have not yet subscribed to the show please click that button so you do not miss another episode like the one that we just had here today because i'm looking at the schedule right now and i gotta tell you we got some goodies coming up Make sure you hit that subscribe button. And thank you to those of you who have left us a review. Thank you to Adam Edson, Mary Mekela, L.M. Fisher, Lisa Fisher. What's up, girl? <laughs> Tim Heil, Vicky737. Thank you. We read these. We share these internally. We love these. Please leave us a review today. And the greatest honor you can pay us is to share this episode. If you're on an iPhone, click those three little dots in the bottom right-hand corner. Text this episode to somebody, somebody who needs it. You have more power to leave a legacy than you know. And suddenly, your listening is not just about you. There's purpose because by you listening, you're now empowering others. Thank you to those of you who will actually take action. It means the world to us. We look forward to being with you in the next episode.